We're going to continue, as Albert said, in the book of Acts. This is a 25-week series, going to take us all the way up to Christmas. And um, this morning we're in Acts chapter 6, and, uh, and, um, and I've got an echo. Uh, I've got two echoes. This is going to be fun. Um, Acts chapter 6, you want to turn there if you can. And uh, we'll have it on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, you can look up there. Um, just let me repeat again. You've got the new NIV. I've got the old one. There's one or two words difference in the translation. Don't let that be a stumbling block. Um, if you've got your own Bible, even if it's not a new international version like we use, bring that along um, because we'd love you to have your Bible in the service, marking it up, making notes. Um, I, I, I've, I have great joy going back through some of these Bibles that I've had for years and noticing things that God spoke to me um, years ago and being reminded afresh of them. So that being said, if you don't own a Bible, then take one of ours with you today. That's our gift to you. So Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 to 7, you just heard it read for you. And what we're going to do is just simply read a little bit and talk about it. And uh, probably the first part of the sermon this morning will be looking at the text itself. And the second half of the sermon, I want to focus on our church, what this means for our church, how we organize our church, how God might be pleased to grow our church as we do the work of ministry, as we seek to be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. And this morning in this passage, we're going to see uh, both growth in the church and opposition to the church. And you would have seen this emerging as a pattern through the book of Acts already, and it'll continue to the end. And up to this point, we've seen two out of three of the major ways that Satan opposes the church. So we've seen opposition can come in many different forms. Sometimes it's cultural opposition. Sometimes it's opposition from within. But from the beginning of the church at Pentecost to today, Satan, our adversary, our enemy, has been active in opposing the ministry of the church. And up to this point, we've seen two of the major, three major ways that he does this. We've seen that he works through persecution. So the apostles get locked up in jail just for preaching the gospel. People today get locked up in jail just for preaching the gospel. Persecution. We've also seen moral failure. This was in last week's text in Acts chapter 5, though we didn't highlight it. It's the the story of um, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. And so through their moral failure, they introduce division and potential destruction for the early church. Persecution, moral failure, and today we're going to see the third of three and probably the most prevalent in our church today, and that is distraction. Satan loves to distract the church from what Jesus has called it to do. And all of these things, persecution, moral failure, and distraction, they can all produce church nightmares. Nightmares. I had this heart-wrenching time last night. Uh, Renee and I sitting on uh, India's bed, and uh, she had woken up during the night. She had had another nightmare. She has these fairly frequently, and um, and so she was sitting up in bed, and she was just like she was just she was just so um, like distressed, and we were so out of ideas how to help her. 
And if you're a parent, you know that feeling of helplessness is not a nice one to have. You're used to being able to aid, to help your kids. And when you can't, it's heart-wrenching. And it was even more heart-wrenching because she said to us, like in exasperation, she said, I got mummy to pray tonight before I went to sleep. I got mummy to pray that I wouldn't have a nightmare. And then I prayed four times that I wouldn't have a nightmare. I prayed four times in different words, she said, like four different ways, just to cover all the bases. I prayed four different ways that I wouldn't have a nightmare. And then she said this, and this broke my heart. She said, if God can't stop them, then who can? Oh, just like breaks a daddy's heart. That's one thing, and it's a terrible thing and a distressing thing. To have kids who are having frequent nightmares, almost as distressing and probably more um, at odds with God's plan for the world, are church nightmares. And I've spoken to many of you because many of you have come out of church experiences that were negative, out of church nightmares, and met with me. And some of you have had those nightmares happen in this church as well. And the reason it's so distressing for us as Christians to experience these church nightmares and for them to be so prevalent is because they are so at odds with the vision that Jesus has for his bride, right? You think about how Jesus prays for his disciples in Luke 17, John 17. In John 17, he prays that they would be united in the same way that he and his father are united. Think about that level of unity. And yet we see over and over again, and it's from Acts until today, we see church nightmare after church nightmare as persecution, moral failure, and distraction set in. Disunity, church splits, relationship breakdowns, right? Leaders who fail morally or disappoint us or ministries that don't fulfill their purpose because distraction comes or whatever it is, everyone in this room to some extent, even if you're not a Christian this morning, has a church nightmare story to some degree. And so this morning I want to look at a situation that happened that it was a potential church nightmare, a potential um, death, premature death to the just born church of God And we're going to see how the apostles responded to it and what it means for us as a church going forward. All right, so let me pray and then we'll get into this passage in front of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a speaking God, that you reveal yourself to us through your word. I pray now that you would save us from the devices of the evil one. Please save us from being distracted pray against that little bird who loves to come and peck out the seed of the word as it's planted. Pray that you would unite us as one body in Christ, submissive to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 6, we'll start at verse 1. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, praise the Lord, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows 
were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right, so there's our issue. There's our potential church nightmare. The context is the church is growing rapidly. So we've seen this, you know, 3,000 men come to faith. Now, the number of disciples was 10,000 men. This is plus women and children, right? The disciples are growing. This, this tiny church that was birthed not months ago is now thousands of people who are coming to hear the gospel, to receive it, to respond to it, to be baptized, and to start growing in Christ-likeness together. It's a beautiful picture of the church being birthed and growing before our very eyes. So the, the, the number of disciples is increasing and increasing rapidly. And whenever that happens, there are potential problems that emerge. Whenever the church grows rapidly, there is a corresponding increased need for administration. And you can, put, you can plug this into a, a business or an organization or w- whatever it is where there's rapid growth, the need for administration increases, and the gap is what can lead to great division. Sound familiar? This, is, this has been us for a good three and a half or four years now. So the church has grown rapidly. There's a need for administration. There's a, now a division, a complaint, an argument between Grecian Jews, that is, Greeks who became Jews, who are now Christians, and Hebraic Jews, that is, Jews who are that by birth, they're Hebrews, and now they've become Christians. And there's a dispute between them, and this is going to be one of the key potential snares for the early church right throughout the New Testament. This is a background kind of conflict from the beginning. Greeks and Jews, massively separated in culture brought together in the church, and there is some tension there. Some people say that the whole book of Romans was written by Paul to the church in Rome to combat this issue. How do you do church when there's Greeks and Jews in the same congregation? Two very different peoples brought together by the gospel and by a shared love for Jesus as Savior. And so this is a potential landmine for the early church. So, what can they do? This nightmare is just starting to emerge in the midst of peaceful sleep. One thing that they could do, one possible solution, is for them to stop preaching the gospel. That's the problem, right? If you drill down, they're preaching the gospel, that's why the church is growing, and that's why they're having these issues, these growing pains. So you stop preaching the gospel, the church will stop growing, You could just do it for a little period of time, right? So we'll stop our missionary endeavors just for a couple of months, maybe, sort out the internal issues, get the right structures in place, and then get back into doing ministry. That's one potential solution. Let's see see what they come up with. Verse 2. So the twelve, that's the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right... For us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. So they hear that idea and reject it outright. It wouldn't be right. We wouldn't just be distracted, this would be moral failure as well. We would be disobedient 
if we decided to stop the ministry of the church, the mission of the church, the preaching of the word, in order to wait on tables, in order to solve this problem. So they say, no, the answer is not to stop the mission. Notice the focus that the uh, apostles have. The focus that they have is their ministry of word and prayer. They're going to outline this even more definitely in a couple of verses' time. But they say, we have been called by Jesus to the ministry of word and the ministry of prayer. It would be wrong for us. It would be disobeying Jesus to stop that. Just like they said to the Jewish leaders, right? They told them to stop preaching. They said, we can either obey you or we can obey God. We're going to go with God on this one, right? In the same way, they can say, we can obey the pressure of administrating a church or we can obey God. Now, they're not looking down on this ministry of waiting on tables. Don't read that sort of sarcastically. We, you know, we, we can't stop preaching the word to wait on tables. They're not saying that. They're just saying we have been called to our ministry. We can't stop doing that for this ministry. So what do they do? What do they do instead? Verse 3 and 4. Brothers, they say, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So rather than saying we'll stop this ministry in order to do that ministry, they say, let's do both ministries. It just means we need to devolve some of the responsibility. We need to spread some of the load. And all of these thousands of people who are becoming Christians, they'll be the ministers of this ministry. We'll focus on word and prayer. That's what Jesus has called us to do and gifted us to do. Now, let's choose seven men to lead this new ministry of waiting on tables that is of essentially pastoral care, of seeing to the needs of the people of the church. And so Satan's device of distraction fails. They nip it in the bud and they employ and deploy other people to do the work of ministry. Now, what we're going to see here is two groups emerging, two groups within the church leadership. And these two groups are later going to be known in the New Testament as elders and deacons. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later on. So don't worry if you don't understand those terms. But there's two groups that are emerging here in church leadership. The question is, are they two groups with two missions? And the answer to that is no. They're two groups with one mission. Two groups, one mission. These are not silos all right, emerging in the church with their own set of mission and vision and values, right? This is two groups, one mission. It's the Olympics now, so let me illustrate this with, with my once every four years sporting analogy, okay? On a sporting team, just about any sporting team, you, you likely have different positions, right? Different responsibilities, but one team with one goal, right? That's, that's very clear, isn't it? different positions on the field, different responsibilities within the team, but one team, one mission, one goal. And that's exactly what's happening here. Two groups emerging, two different positions, 
two different responsibilities, one mission, one team, one God. So you need to have that very clear in your minds. This is not some kind of... Um, some kind of class divide in the early church. This is not some kind of greater responsibility and lesser responsibility. It's just two different roles on the same team. It's left hand, right hand. Oh, and here's the other thing too. This is really well illustrated, right? Because in, ver- in chapter 7 and 8, I only noticed this for the first time this week. In the list that we're about to read of men who are chosen to do the servant work, the waiting on tables work, there's Stephen and there's Philip. In the next two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, you have Stephen and Philip doing remarkable acts of evangelism and witnessing and word ministry. So this is not like some kind of church and parachurch thing where the church does the gospel work and the parachurch doesn't really do gospel, it just does service. That's not what's happening here. All of these guys who are called to do the servant work are also doing evangelism. They're witnessing to the risen Lord Jesus. They're telling their friends and their co-workers and the people in the street about the good news of the gospel. Right? So it's super clear. Luke doesn't want us to be at all misled. This is one team, different roles within the team, with the same mission and the same goal. So the apostles say, brothers, choose, uh, choose seven men from among you, verse 3, who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. This is something, again, that you'll see throughout the New Testament. It's a pattern that when it comes to choosing people for ministry, whether that's elder or deacon, whether that's upfront word ministry or background serving ministry, no matter what, there's always this pattern of character over competency. Character over competency. So it's about someone's heart, not about how good they are at something. So I didn't say, we've got this issue with serving people. Let's get the ones that, you know, people who are, who are in, their, in their normal walks of life, they're baristas and waitresses and stuff. Let's get them to do this job. No, they say, let's find people who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. Let's find godly, exemplary people. Same when it comes to the list of qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3. They don't say, okay, the elders, they're the word guys. Let's get the ones who are the most eloquent, the best at preaching, the ones who have doctorates, the ones who have written books, the ones with loud voices. They don't say that. They say, here are the qualifications and they're all character qualifications. There's only one possible exception to that in the list of 1 Timothy 3, and that's able to teach, to be an elder. But even then, it can be translated teachable, which is character, not competency, right? So here's the point. When we're looking for people to serve, whether it's a pastor in the church or someone who is in charge of the cleaning ministry, we're looking for character over competency. We're looking for people who, like these men, are full of the spirit and of wisdom. We're looking for Christ-like people. Why? Because Christ himself is our greatest example of servanthood. More on that in a minute. So the apostles, they proposed this solution. 
At this point, it's just their idea. They put it out there to the, all of the, the disciples. How does it go? Verse, seven, verse 5 to 7, this is what it says. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who's a convert to Judaism and presumably a convert then to Christianity, all right? They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So they make this proposal. We're going to devolve this authority for the oversight of this ministry to these seven spirit-filled wise men. We can see that they're spirit-filled and wise because we can see the fruit of their lives. They love others. They're compassionate. They're gracious. They're good with their families. They're good with their businesses. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. And they devolve the responsibility for this ministry to them so that they can focus on what they've been called to, the work of prayer and and word, preaching and evangelism, leadership of the church. And the outcome is that everyone's happy. This is like a pastor's dream come true, right? I had an idea and not everybody hated it. It's just amazing. It hasn't happened since then, but... It's a good example for us, all right? Everyone is happy. It pleased the whole group. And then this beautiful thing happens. The whole group take these guys and they present them to the apostles. The apostles lay their hands on them. Another way to translate it is that everyone laid their hands on them, um, which with thousands of people is just like a big scrum sort of thing that happens. And they pray for them and ask God to empower them for their new ministry. This is what we do. We did a couple of weeks ago with Simon as we commissioned him, right? We do it every year with our youth leaders, our small group leaders. Um, Whenever we commission someone for the work of ministry, we will lay hands on them, pray for them. Notice, just in case you're wondering, there is no transfer of magical powers from the apostles to these people when this happens, right? This is not a big magic ceremony. They're already filled with the Spirit. There's not some conveyance and filling of the Spirit through the apostles like Some denominations see in ordination services, there's nothing like that. These men are already filled with the Spirit. This is simply a cultural way of saying, we're with you, we're supporting you, now let us pray for you. So they're pleased with the proposal, they present them to the apostles, they pray for them to be blessed and empowered for their ministry. And then the cherry on the cake, the outcome that proves that this was a really good idea, the desired outcome for every decision we make in church, big and small, the outcome, verse 7, so, therefore, the outcome is that the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. That's God's sign of approval on their idea of how to organize the church. That's how you know something's a really good idea. 
I love it in the original Greek. The literal translation is that the word of God grows and the number of disciples grows rapidly. That's what we want to see. We want to so organize our church so that the word of God grows and where the word of God grows, you see inevitably disciples grow. Growth in maturity and growth in conversion. Now, is it going to happen in this church as rapidly as it did in the book of Acts? Maybe. Probably not. Maybe. But every person saved is cause for celebration, as Jesus says himself. Now, I want you to notice this. People decided to wait on tables, and the outcome is that the number of disciples grew rapidly. Don't miss that connection. We'll come back to that in a minute when I address common complaints people make about having the gift of service in the church, all right? But for the rest of our time, I just want to discuss, and this is really kind of verbal processing for me, I want to discuss how we can implement what appears to be a fairly solid biblical way of organizing the church, how we can implement that in our church in Caroline Springs in 2016. So tomorrow night, Everyone look right at me because I want you to pray about this, all right? Tomorrow night, I'll go to our board meeting. We have our monthly board meeting with the parish council and the church wardens. They're the sort of lay leadership of our church. I'm going to go to them with a, an org chart that I've put together. And I'm going to go with them, to them with this org chart, and it's going to be an org chart that is basically just a picture or a graphic example of how we can apply New Testament church governance to our Anglican church in 2016. And I'm going to say to them, I want this to be what we as a church move towards, what we budget for, what we pray for, all right? And so you can be praying that that goes well for me and that that proposal pleases the whole group, all right? You can pray that for that. And you can pray that as we do this, because this is a constant pursuit we have, to want to constantly refine and sharpen what we do so that we're less distracted, more focused, and more biblical, you can pray that as we do that, God will bless us in that endeavor, all right? But let me just explain what I think it means for us to be a church that's governed by elders and deacons. What it means for the church in the first century and what it means for us today, all right? So here's the thing, right? Here's, here's the issue. One of the issues we have, and I feel like this whole idea is sort of to varying degrees misunderstood by just about every church on earth. And it's misunderstood in different ways in different denominations. They each have their own way of screwing this up, right? And part of the problem for all of us, and part of the reason this is confusing, is that there are multiple terms used for the same thing. So whenever you have that, there's a potential for confusion. This is happening with me right now with my boy Judah, okay? Judah, he'll be three in October, and he is a, he's a grammar Nazi. He's a pedant already, all right? He will correct me constantly in my use of terminology. So I, I, I knew I was going to talk about this. I noticed it yesterday. Um, in the morning, I got up with him, and we went downstairs, and we got him dressed, and um, I had to do a couple of things in preparation. So I said, 
Judo, let's turn on the TV. And whenever I say something that's not the correct use of the word, he, he starts with this. No! It's like five syllables. No! Right? And he, says, he said, no, not TV, television. And then we were going out to see some friends in the city. And I said, Judah, chuck your shoes on. And he said, no, not shoes, boots. And then at night time, I was tucking him into bed. I said, Judah, put your cup on your bedside table. He said, no, bench. All right, so in every case, I wasn't wrong. It's just that there are multiple terms for the same thing. And in his mind, there should only be one. And it would make things a lot easier if there was just one, right? So let me make an attempt at, at giving us just one instead of multiple terms. Because when you look at the New Testament, you're going to see all these different terms for the same thing. You're going to see things like overseers and elders and bishops and pastors and shepherds. And then bringing in our own t- non-biblical terminology for the same thing, we've got priests and ministers and other ways of convoluting the waters, all right? clouding the waters. So let me explain what an elder is in the New Testament and what it means for us today. In the New Testament, uh, particularly Paul in his epistles will refer to elders and overseers and shepherds. Elders, overseers, used to be translated bishops and Shepherds, sometimes translated pastors. Pastor just means shepherd. Like shepherds work in a pasture. You get it, all right? So elders and overseers and shepherds. Now, here's the thing. This is vital for us to get. Those three things are all the same thing. Those three things are all the same thing. Thing. They're used interchangeably. In different denominations, they'll make them separate things. They're not separate things. Elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, shepherd, one role, one office in the church. You can see this in our own book of Acts. Very clearly, this is how Paul addresses the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. It's going to come up in just a second. All right. So, in verse 17, this introduces this passage. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for who? For the Ephesian elders. And this is what he said to the Ephesian elders. He said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Right, Just beautifully tied up there in that one passage. Elders are overseers or bishops, and they do the work of shepherding or pastoring. Right? All the same thing, one role. Now, I'm going to speak a little bit now about these things, and you're, some of your eyes are glazing over because this is, this, unless you're a church geek, in which case you're thinking, this is the best sermon I've ever heard, the rest of you are bored. Right? But... Stick with me, because just as it's easy to think that waiting on tables is boring, and yet it leads to great kingdom fruit, the same goes for this stuff. And I really want to establish this. We can get it established, and then we don't have to worry about it too much anymore, okay? So, all the same thing. Peter, lest you think this is just a Paul thing. No, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 
he makes elders and pastors the same thing. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So now you've got, he's an apostle and an elder, all right? More conflation. As a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds. Elders, be shepherds. Elders, be pastors of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. So here's the thing. All you need to remember, elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. That's all you need to remember. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. Now, when it comes to deacons, elders primarily consumed with, charged with the ministry of word and prayer and seeing to the the pastoral care of the people of the church. Deacons. Again, this can be confusing. Like in the Anglican church, if you get ordained, you become a deacon until you get the upgrade to priest. And in both cases, the terminology is off. Because in the New Testament, there are no priests. That's an Old Testament thing. And in the New Testament, deacons aren't ordained word people. They're servants. All right? So we screwed that one up, okay? Just put my hand up as representative of the Anglican church. Um, we, we screwed that one up. But, but it, it gets screwed up in, in other churches as well. So um, we, 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 we all can own some of the, the screwed upness of the, the governance structures of our church. But here's the thing. The deacons are servants. Very simple. The Greek word diakonos just means servant. To serve is to deek. All right? In the New Testament, it'll say often they were deeking. They were deeking. It just means they were serving. So deacons in the church are set aside normally by the elders, in this case the apostles, who become the elders roughly translated, normally set aside by the elders of the church to do the serving work of ministry, which enables the word ministry to go, which enables the church to grow. So deacons are vital. In fact, they're not just, I mean, yeah, they're literally vital. That means without them, you don't have anything. Without vital signs in your body, you're dead. Without the vital work of deacons in the church, we're dead. We're dead. And there have been times in the history of this church over the last 10 years or so where the vital signs were very, very, very weak. Where there is a couple of deacons who are keeping the body alive. And what we need is a church full of servants, full of vital ministry. So I've had some recent conversations with people and I don't know if God's been doing this by providence in in anticipation for this, but it's been more often than usual in the last month. People have said, I wish I wasn't, I wish I didn't have the gift of serving. Because it's boring, because it's hard, because it's, it's, it's thankless. And what I want us to see here this morning is that the work of deaconing, the work of serving in the church is absolutely vital. Without deacons, we don't have a church. If they didn't set aside some deacons to do this work, then the way Luke writes it, you do not have the corresponding growth in word and growth in church numbers, growth in converts. 
Then beyond that, in Acts 6, we see these deacons are not just the leftovers, right? You get all the good people to do the Bible studies and then the leftovers can do the cleaning. That's not what happens. They choose people who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. And they choose people who are full of the spirit and of wisdom because the role of deacon is the role of Christ-like servant. This is a role for Jesus' people. This is a role for people who are, though they're flawed, they are growing in Christ-likeness all of the time. So they're full of the Spirit, they're full of wisdom, they're exemplary Christians, they enable the growth of the church. Without them, the church would die, and they take as their example the Lord Jesus himself. What does he say in Matthew chapter 20? What does he say? Jesus called his disciples together. Remember, they're all arguing about who's going to be the best, the greatest, who's going to be the elder, the pastor, the bishop. And he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just, and get this, please get this. Those of you who wish that you had different giftings, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve... uh, Sorry, let me start that again. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many... Who's the greatest deacon in the church? Jesus. Who are you emulating when you serve in the church? Jesus. Who washes the disciples' feet? Jesus. Who condescends from the glory of heaven to the mess of this world in order to save us and be a ransom for many? Jesus. So this is the beautiful thing. The New Testament says Jesus is the chief shepherd, that is the senior pastor, and he's the chief deacon. Jesus is our chief elder and our chief deacon. So next week when I, most probably, if the board is happy with it, give you a copy of this org chart, how we want our church to be structured. The big thing up the top, the big red circle, senior pastor, Jesus. So I love that we're an Anglican church. I think there's great, great benefit in being an Anglican church which is rooted in hundreds of years of tradition, which has at its foundational documents beautiful, biblical, reformed theology. I think it gives us an anchor that will help us, stop us from straying off the path that God has given us. I love all of those things. I affirm all of those things. I also think we've got some things really wrong. I think the idea of having a vicar or a rector, a a priest who is in charge of a whole church and sort of stands alone at the top of the org chart by himself is wrong. Every church in the New Testament is governed by elders, pastors, but there's a plurality of them. There's a group of them. And so 
I would love us, and we're going to talk about this as a board on tomorrow night, I would love us in the next six months to add to our number of pastors. Right now, I'm the lead pastor, and I'm the only pastor. I would love us to call one or two or three, depending on how the Spirit leads, biblically qualified men to be pastors in our church. If you look at our vision, values, and beliefs, you'll see that we stand with 2,000 years of church history in believing that the role of elder is to be fulfilled by a qualified man. If you want to know more about that, or if you want to arm wrestle me over that, we can do that by all means later on. But it's not the purpose of this sermon. So I'd love us to pursue that, increasing the number of pastors. Will I still be the lead pastor? Yes. Will I, in the Anglican governance structure, still be in the sort of vicar position? Yes. But functionally, will we serve the church as a group, as, an, as a board, as a, as, a, as a team of elders by God's grace? Yes. I would also love to establish our parish council and chief among them our church wardens as chief deacons in our church. That they would be the first among servants. They would be the first to serve as they are already and then they would call others to join them in the work of serving in the church so that we'd have some accountability and some encouragement. So I'm going to share this with you next week in concrete and hopefully with the approval of the board and you can feed back and tell me what you think of it. But in the meantime, I would love to call you to pray about this. This is a pretty significant thing for our church. And if you're just visiting this morning, apologies. Sometimes we just go a little bit in-house because we need to. But this is super important and it will set the course, really, for us for the coming years by God's grace. I would love for us to correct some errors in the way that we've done this in the past. The two denominations that I'm most familiar with uh, Anglicans and Baptists, that's my, my own family heritage, Anglican and Baptist. And so we've done this in the wrong way in, in many ways over the years. Anglicans, they all often say, who are the elders of the church? Well, they must be the wardens, right? And then the wardens go, wait, wait we're, we're not pastors. We're not biblically qualified. We're not, we haven't been trained. And they're lumped with this responsibility for being elders in the church that they were never intended to have. And then you get this sort of class divide where, well, the elders must be up here and the deacons are down here somewhere. All the confusion around terminology because of the ordination thing. And in Baptist church, quite often what you'll see is that you'll have this board of deacons who end up like holding the elders to ransom because they hold the keys to the church, right? And they can fire the elders. And so the sword of Damocles is hanging over the pastors and at any point the deacons can just cut the rope, right? And so that you don't get that picture here either. The deacons aren't holding the elders to ransom. That's not how this works. So I'd love to just move beyond all that stuff. Please be praying for that. Also next week, if you come along, you will receive... I might just do it on the screen because it's, it's prone to change slightly, that whole org chart thing. But you will receive in your hands a slip of paper and it'll simply be an opportunity for you to write down some areas in which you might like to be a deacon in our church. Some areas in which you would like to serve in our church. It's as simple as that. So as a, a staff, we will identify some key areas where, I mean, it's, 
It's getting desperate now. It's getting to the point where Grecian um, widows are arguing with Hebraic widows, all right? And it's, it's potentially going to tear us apart. That's happening now in our church. And we would like to solve it in the same way that the apostles did. We would love for you to step into that, into that brokenness and make it whole through serving. So you'll have an opportunity to do that next week and probably every other week for this month, all right? That's some housekeeping stuff. We have to do it from time to time. All of it's important and all of it is, uh, is absolutely a waste of time without God's blessing. So why don't we pray for that now? Father in heaven, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture, but you've also revealed to us how we should organize our church. And sometimes we haven't done this well. And sometimes we've fumbled around with it and we've caused harm in doing so. And sometimes we just haven't had the resources and sometimes we haven't had the will and sometimes we just haven't been listening to your spirit. So, Father, please help us to plot a course for wholeness and health. Lord Jesus, we know that we will not be a perfect church until you come again. And we look to that day with, just, with, with yearning because we want to be perfect But until that day, please help us in our weakness. Please help us. Lord, as as Indy prayed last night, please, please stop the nightmares. Please stop the nightmares. Please stop the church nightmares. Please stop the breakdowns in relationship. Please stop the breakdowns in care. Please help us to administer this place, administrate this place in such a way that the Word of God can grow and the number of converts in Caroline Springs and beyond can grow. This is our great desire. And so we put it before you and trust you to lead us in it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.